Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another conversation in Building the Bridge. My name is Jesse Brizendine. My name is Jared Countess, and our mission is to empower people to use their voice to build a bridge beyond race relations, creating unity and understanding, effectively raising the collective conscious of humanity. Last week, we got into a really interesting discussion about the removal of some of the cultural things that we've known for a long time. We talked about Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and also discussion about taking down the statues and tearing down the statues that we see going around. And if you haven't listened or heard, watched that conversation, we definitely encourage you to do so. This week, we're going to talk about, we're going to address a couple questions that were posted in the group. And then we're going to continue to evolve our discussion around psychology and getting into the more of why we do what we do. Jared, I'll start off by reading the first question that comes to us from Barbie. You ready? Yeah, go for it. All right. I've seen posts. I've seen posts where they say, white people, you're not helping the Black Lives Matter cause. Can you address this? Also, I'm not sure if you've seen the new Procter & Gamble ads. I really like them. I like Jared's opinion of them. So let's start with you're not helping the Black Lives Matter cause because I've, I've definitely seen some of that too. So there's a lot to though that copy-paste piece. Um, and it's talking about really the violence, right? When you see, um, when you see the white protesters who are supposedly with Black Lives Matter, spray painting BLM on buildings or attacking, like physically attacking Trump supporters or any of that kind of stuff. Um, that's, that's really um, what they're saying. And also to a certain extent, um, the calling out your other white people as racist. Um, it's like, we, we need you to be advocates for us on our behalf, right? But we need you to, we need you to, to, to speak to them from a perspective of learning, teaching, and compassion. Um, we're actually hoping that you can have more compassion um, in situations where we can, right, in general. Right. So um, the pain is the pain is so like some like I told you today, I'm trying to keep this short. That was exhausted. Right. <laughs> I told you today that I was I was kind of, I was I was burning out. Right. And um, and it's not sometimes it's because I do get angry. Right. Sometimes people make statements that that make me upset. Right. But I know that it wouldn't be um, conducive to respond in an upset manner. And it's, and it's not, um, guys, if you're watching this and you're in a group, obviously you guys know that I have conversations outside of the group. <laughs> and you know what the world is like out there right now, which is why we're protective of who we invite into the group. And so, um, you know, sometimes you have a discussion with somebody and that discussion really turns into an altercation, right? Um, even though it's online or whatever. Um, and I am trying to reach a point of understanding, trying to get it to a place where we can understand. And it's hard. It's hard. Um, and so, you know, and not it, don't know if, not everybody's me. So some people are going to, you're going to throw a stone, I'm going to throw a stone back. And so they're asking when they say that is, Hey, I can't be compassionate with this person. Mm. I, you know, I need you to be compassionate with them and come at them from an angle that I can't come at them from, right? So that they can hear what it is that I'm trying to say in my rage. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so that's the you're not you're not helping by mirroring my anger. Um, I need you to be I need you to be civil <laughs> when I'm being. Yeah. <laughs> emotional <laughs> yeah. dude i appreciate that like it's it's something and barbie i'll just share this with you too and back in may when everything started to really heat up i was i was wrestling with that too where i felt like i wanted to do something to help 
and there was it seemed to be so scattered and as a white person i couldn't tell if i was going to be problem helping or if i was going to be helpful helping and it felt horrible to sit with that the reason that i jared and i are doing this is because one of the things i really appreciate and respect about jared is he made it very safe and inviting right from day one and if you're if anybody in there is wrestling with those kinds of things find the people who are going to that are gonna empower you to feel safe and inviting and they'll hold the space to have those discussions. And, and, and <clears throat> I think find the, you know, find the middle because there's, it's, it's extremes on either side only seem to be the ones that yell the loudest, right? They really, really are. And there's ones in the middle that I think that most of us are all on kind of the same page. We just might have different language. We just might have different life experiences. But I really do believe the majority of us are on the same page. And, and so find the ones that feel safe and, and ask those questions. And, I, you know, with the, and I'll just say this too, as a, as a white guy, I don't know enough about the Black Lives Matter organization to comment on it. I, I believe in the, the notion of it. And there was one documentary I saw several years ago, and it was so impactful. And, it was, and I, I forget the guy's name, but I'll find it. And if somebody knows who this is, just post it in the group. And I think it's on Netflix, and it's a, a black guy, jazz musician, I think, who he started going to KKK rallies, and he has converted, like, I don't know, hundreds of white guys out of the KKK. And so he'll go to these rallies, and the heads of the KKK, like, invite him in and accept him in as more of a a brother and the brotherhood of the KKK than most of the white guys. And sometimes, and he has some of the white guys in there that were now calling him his best friend and whatnot. And I remember in that he, he went to a black lives matter and met with some of the, I think it was some of the upper leadership in black lives matter. And if I'm recalling the documentary, so please don't hold me to this definitively because it's been a few years. What was really interesting in it is a few things. One, the rhetoric on both sides was there were similarities in the sense of of both are expressing wants, but to hear the wants, we have to listen past the rhetoric of it all. And you'll see that there's fundamental wants that both sides have, that there's parallels. It's just their way of expressing it as extremes in, in that way. And two, he was actually rejected by the leadership from Black Lives Matter because they looked at him as someone not supporting the cause with him going and spending the time with these members of the Klan. And I remember there was a moment where I think he actually extended his hand to have it be sh to shake the hands of the leadership and they, they swatted it away. Now, this is something that I think Jared and I are gonna talk about a lot today because it's easy for me to make a decision off of one piece of information, one focal point. And especially when it's documented, it's put up on Netflix, that adds layers of social proof that we're trained that if it's on TV, if it's in this kind of thing, if it's got media behind it, it must be even more real. So it's just one perspective to offer uh, you know, with it too. But I think that for me, what is real is, is someone like Jared, who when it comes up to this white versus black and someone who is making it safe, who's open, who's willing to listen, who empowers me to ask questions, that to me is real. And those are the, those are the types of people who I wanna seek out and find and create, you know, have meaningful conversations with and, and make meaningful change. Yeah, so. To the Proctor, the Proctor Gamble, um, yep. I thought it was, I thought it was nice. I liked it, um, you know, uh, I don't have all those things really happen you know you're pretty for a black girl um you know same as people say she's cute for a big girl <laughs> you know but you know black is something that you're born with can't be helped as far as black skin um but you know um the thought of having to work um twice as hard twice as hard or be twice as good to prove yourself um and we'll get to there in every area except athletics feels like it's true right um in terms of like you know intelligence or work ethic or anything else like that there you know um it's funny so 
people say first impressions are lasting impressions, right? So first, you know, somebody pretty much has an idea of you within the first 15 seconds of meeting you, right? Um, and they kind of decide do they even want to spend 15 seconds with, with you within the first five seconds of seeing you. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, you know, that's really real. Um, but we also have preconceived things, right? So that said, I feel like as a black man, if you want to go into the Procter & Gamble thing, I feel like as a black man, um, somebody will get a first impression of me. Oh, he's really smart. He's intelligent. Most of the time I don't dress that nice, so they won't say I'm, I'm, I'm dressed that nice. Um, but if I do, then yeah. But um, they'll say he's really smart. He's really intelligent. Um, but after that, I feel like it's often a case of I'm looking for the flaw, mm. right? What, what maps on to everything else that I know or believe about Black people that he does? Mm. Does that make any kind of sense? And so, and so I can have, they'll find a flaw, which we all have them, and they'll map that on to everything else. And in my situations and my thoughts and belief structures, right, the way I perceive that is it will actually erode the other things that they believed about me, which I don't think that's the case with other people where they'll see that they'll see a flaw or if you're not black, they'll see your flaw and they'll be like, Oh yeah, he's a great guy. He does this, you know, but this little thing right here, do you, you understand what I'm saying? We're okay. I'm going to fucking do it. All right. So I always <laughs> fucking do something. Right. So great example to me is Donald Trump. Okay. successful businessman, all this stuff, says crazy things on his Twitter account. Everybody agrees on it, right? You know what I mean? I don't think he's dumb. Other people do, right? But if he was, I feel like if Donald Trump was black and he made some of the statements or things that he he's done, not only would people be like, he's dumb, he's dumb, he's rich. Everything that people disagree with, on the whole country would almost agree. Mm. That this guy's a fucking idiot. He's a fucking racist. He's a da 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 da. Despite having being a billionaire and having built the business that he's built, does that? Am I making any kind of sense? It, it, the 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 mistakes that he's made would have eroded his character to the point where no one no one would support him. And that's, and that's, and that's, maybe that's, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe if he was black, people would still be like, yeah, he just, somebody needs to pull his Twitter account away from him. He just says some crazy reckless stuff. Maybe it would still be the case. <laughs> maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. Um, you know, uh, if, that, that, I, that would be a question I would post to group, but I, I'm going to save that. But I don't know. That's, that's my that's opinion of black man is my me I'm always on razor's edge doesn't matter first impression second impression third impression all I have to do is have one mistake and people will map that onto me now I have life experiences that tell me different um because obviously I'm a flawed person but you know it it uh is I feel the need to be perfect more often hmm. that makes any kind of sense. I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Jared. And it's interesting because I can feel, and it, here's, here's, it's listening to you talk. It's like, wow, I can relate to so much. And then there's this one piece where I, there's, where there's a clear difference, right? So I, I can, I can fully appreciate the, uh, you know, that first impression piece and that then you're going to be judged beyond that. And what, as you were talking, what popped up to me is I remember a couple of my girlfriends in college, and most of my friends in college that I was really close to were, were Asians. And so my, my, which I've always wondered, why do we call black, white, but then everybody else is not a color? I've always been curious about that. We could have a whole nother discussion about that. I mean, maybe there's some divisiveness intent there. Who knows? But we'll say that. Anyways, my, 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 I always called them my Asian ladies. 
they were trying to help dress me one time and you know, this is this is me dressed up right here and they were telling me i remember this conversation saying i had to have nice shoes because people would judge the shoes and as soon as they saw the shoes and if they weren't nice they were gonna whatever and i remember just like oh it's so stupid but anyways i let them go and talk me into getting shoes because they're all you want to get attention from girls right so you better get shoes a few years ago i was at a bar with a few friends and we were out celebrating a buddy's birthday and I was just wearing tennis shoes. I was long past the point of where I even, you know, really gave a shit about that anymore. And I remember this one girl commenting on me wearing tennis shoes and kind of like, you're wearing tennis shoes. And I go, yeah, they're fucking comfortable. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but anyways, back to what you were saying is, is so I can appreciate that, that judgment piece. And I had shared with you before, like, you know, my own fear of doing this was that, there's something could be taken out of context it's trimmed down into a 10 to 15 second clip it's recut in a way where i've spent years putting out this building this image of whatever and trying to build this brand on love and compassion and understanding and and taking responsibility and then overnight because i'm a white male in america right now dude i'm racist i'm i'm public enemy number one so that's that but where i see there's a difference is I'm acknowledging of that right now because it's a hot thing right now. And I think that it's, and in some ways, like I almost feel like I can, I can be scapegoated to that because there might be this and it could be projected. But where I do, I see there's a difference is where you feel that need to be perfect all the time because of black being black. I don't have that so much. I don't feel that society puts that responsibility on me that I need to be perfect so much. And that, if I'm not perfect, the consequences for that judgment, with the exception of current circumstances, won't be as severe. Does that make sense? No, no, I, I, I actually, you kind of do two things for me right there. One, you made me feel that you do feel some pressure to be perfect, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> or to not be, yeah. so that, that kind of, kind of opened me up um, but I appreciate you validating, but yes, we, we feel like in general, the second that I'm not perfect, the second that I don't do whatever my whole, at all times, my whole reputation, everything that I've like, I have to prove myself as, as being smart, as being responsible, as being et cetera, et cetera, with every action. Right. And then if you want to go into the any of the the stuff with either Ahmaud Arbery or Black Lives Matter all that kind of stuff and things that happen is just that same projection oh well how did he respond when the cops came yeah oh he got into an argument with the cop oh he the cop felt threatened and it, you know what I mean yeah the same level of I have to be always turned on yeah and you know I, what I mean? Dude, and I do because like I feel like in this dynamic, you and I say something, and for me, where that threat comes is it, it's it's in a really interesting thing, right? Because I feel like in this, the screenshot goes, I'm the one that gets called the racist, right? I feel like that's a that's a a, a really a convenient term to put on, especially white male. Yeah. Right. Right now. And it, it's, it's a really interesting thing with the psychology of it because I, and I think we're going to go into this a lot more when we start to get into law enforcement. And I think that's the one where we're both kind of like, you know, where do we go with it? Because I can appreciate the, the other night I was asleep and, but I was kind of in that in between like dozing off, not fully asleep, but somebody shot fireworks off and it shook me up right because it's an unexpected noise it's something i wasn't anticipating and in that i felt that fight or flight response kick in my heart starts racing everything else and i'm sitting there making this decision that irrational part of my brain is even though i'm laying in bed and i'm telling myself i'm safe it's fireworks talking myself through it but i still have that physiological response to it and i think that when we do get into that discussion on, on policing and everything else, like there's a really, it's going to be an interesting discussion because there's these factors that have to come in that I think we have to acknowledge to be able to make meaningful change that 
that empowers all parties involved, citizens and law enforcement to be safer, to have more respect for one another, to be more empowered to do a job in a safe way, mm -hmm. and to hopefully empower communities and individuals to make decisions that mitigate the need for the presence of law enforcement too. Yes. You know, <laughs> right. And then it was, it's, it's, yes. it's, and that's, and that's on all sides, I think too, because I, um, yeah, so I, I, I think we've kind of gone on a tangent here. I don't know if we just got away from Procter and Gamble completely. <laughs> no, it was, I think it was, I think it was good. Cause I think the Procter Gamble was, it was, it was deep. It was deep. Um, it was great. I like what they said. Mind you, I am, we both do psychology of marketing and we both know his business and all that other kind of stuff. So I, 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 I like what they did. I like the marketing. I like the, the message is honest, right? Whether or not it's honest coming from Procter and Gamble. <laughs> but, but the things that they said were true. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just obviously, keeping it. I'm just. Hey, look. Obviously, Gamble, Procter and Gamble won't be endorsing us anytime <laughs> They rule that industry like with an iron fist. They're oh. like, they're like really like two companies in the beauty industry and the health and beauty industry. And like Procter and Gamble is like, it's them and uh, I forget who the other person is. Johnson but, Johnson. Huh? The Johnson Johnson. Johnson and Depp. That's basically it. Johnson Johnson, Procter Gamble. I mean, cleaning supplies to, you know, lotions, washes, deodorants. <laughs> it's like, it's like when you look at like, oh, this, I like Old Spice. Oh, B16. Oh, same, mm -hmm. same people. <laughs> it's just <laughs> genius. The marketing. Anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but no, um, but yeah, so yeah, no, I, I, I think it was a good, it was a good segue. And I think that was, a, I think that was Barbie's point. Yeah. Right. Is that, is asking, is, is that really how you, you feel? And then of course now we can, the police thing, when we get there, that's going to be, um, yeah, that's a deep one. So I guess this is the next question. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll so and he asked, I'm looking forward to your discussion. Oops, I'm looking forward to your qualified immunity discussion. And we're going to devote more of a lengthy discussion on that in a future video, right? Yes. Dukes asks, or he said, anti-lynching bill. Why would there be opposition? How can a bill be held up by one vote if the president, Senate leader, Senate leader and majority of Senate from the same party as the senators who's opposed? You want me to go first? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go first on this. Um, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that one senator can never hold up a bill. Like, he could do a filibuster, right? And he can stand on the floor, and he can, because you have to give them time to speak. That's what a filibuster is. Like, if I have an opposition to something, I have to, I have to be granted time to speak on the floor. So I can literally, it's happened. Guys have got up there and read the dictionary, read the Bible, They've done everything to hold up a vote. Um, so that said, um, he hasn't done a 25-day filibuster, right? <laughs> he went to the floor June 5th. He hasn't done that. But he uh, proposed changes to the bill because he didn't like the language. Um, the reason I'm not going to go deeper into that is I don't know if any of you have ever read a bill like actually read a bill that goes to the floor um, to get voted on. Um, I'll be honest. I started, I got into politics like on the outskirts at a very young age. So I, I, when I first heard the bill song, I opened up a bill and started reading it. It was 97 pages long <laughs> and I had to go to the library and it referred to other legal cases, which set legal precedents and other laws which were also extremely long so to understand a bill especially a complex one um you got to do a lot of reading 
You have to have a small understanding of legal language, of Latin, things like that. And so um, the reason why I am not willing to give my opinion on that, other than to say it's not just one senator, um, is because I haven't read the bill. Um, and so, um, yeah, once, once I read it, um, then I would be willing to dive deeper into it. Um, and, but, and then I never, then being on outskirts of politics in my twenties, um, most, most people don't read the bills that go in front of them and they make a judgment based upon the title or the opposition to it or the advice of their team who are supposed to read the bill. And they do it in that order, right? So they do it in the, well, what's the title? Oh, it's something my constituency will probably agree with. Okay, what's the opposition to it? Oh, there's no, almost no opposition, right? And then they ask their team who's supposed to read it, what does it say? So it's literally, that is how they, they, they make their decisions. And a lot of times it doesn't make it to what does the bill actually say? Most of the time it goes, what's the title? Will my constituency support it, right? Based upon the title, because they'll never read it and I don't want to read it, right? Who's opposing it? Do I agree with the person opposing it, right? If I agree with the person opposing it, now maybe I'll read it and decide, or maybe I really agree with this person. And so if they oppose it, then I oppose it, right? And, um, or do the people I disagree with oppose it? And then maybe I'll read it, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just support it because they disagree with it and I got to stand against them, right? So the, this is decision-making in politics. It has nothing, it, the last thing they're worried about is what does this law actually say most of the time? When you're talking about five, when you're talking about 600 people, right? 500 some people, you know, taking part in the vote. They're, you know, what's the title of it? What's it supposed to do, right? And what it really does. That's why, that's why welfare can be the way it is, right? And structured the way it is because what it's supposed to do and what it does, right? In actuality are different things. And a lot of times you see bills passed where what they, the laws pass, whereas bills become laws, whereas what they say they're going to do versus what they actually do, there's a, a difference, right? And it takes, you have to, so I haven't unraveled it. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything other than you see one guy standing against it and it hasn't passed. It's more than one guy. That's not true. <laughs> okay, yeah. clear here, Jesse. <laughs> you know, I appreciate that and I think that I'll, I'll first I'll first I'll say is I haven't read it and I had never even heard of it until today there's a saying that context is king and queen and I'm going to give you two perspectives and I'm offer a, well maybe it's only two perspectives so let's give you a couple thoughts and offer another if I read anti-lynching bill as a headline and then I see somebody opposed it the emotional knee-jerk reaction is lots of name calling, lots of finger pointing, a lot of blaming. Who the fuck would oppose something like that? What is wrong with the world? How can this be going on in the U.S. Senate? There must be a bunch of you know racist white old men, something like that. That's I think the emotional response that can be elicited from that because that was one of my first thoughts too. It's like anti-lynching. While Jared and I were talking, prepping before today, I just looked up very quickly to see who opposed it. It was Rand Paul from Kentucky. And, and there was a little snippet that said the reason he did was because of the language of it. And the language in it, he suggested, could mean that it would make it federal, a federal offense and that if somebody had, was in a lesser crime and it caused bruising around the net, that that person would be prosecuted for a federal crime under his perception of the language of the law. Now, what's interesting is if you read that, Without the anti-lynching law headline, it seems to be a little bit more reasonable. It seems to make a little more sense that if somebody were to, if Jared and I were talking, he said, hey, there's this law I think that we should pass. The only thing that needs to be changed is the language of it is a little, like, it could be if you get, if you're in an altercation, you get bruising around your neck, people are upset, it could lead to 10 years in prison and be prosecuted as a federal offense. You know, I think we could all maybe say that that might be a 
area to look at without the headline because there's not the emotion that comes with a headline like anti-lynching law. Now I'll offer this as a as just a point of of context with this. After September 11th, there was the Patriot Act was passed, right? And and when September 11th happened, we want to look at how do we how do we start to clamp down terrorism? And please do not. I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on TV. I don't want to pretend that I'm even interpreting the laws here. I'll just give a personal experience. One of the provisions that got under the language of that law was that if you had modified fireworks, it could be considered a bomb, some sort of terrorist act, and therefore be federally prosecuted. I know this to be true because someone who I love and care about actually encountered that situation. Where I grew up in Northern California, we could still buy fireworks from fireworks stands. And what we had learned as kids is that if you, if you took the piccolo peaks, which were these little ones that are about this tall and you'd light them and they'd scream and shoot sparks out and everything. Well, if you took them and took pliers to them and you squeezed them, that it would scream and then it would make a pop to it. It wasn't like a large explosion or anything like it, it was just a pop. And so as kids, we would, we would squeeze the fireworks to try to get them to pop at the same time, make a little bit of explosion, gave it a little extra, you know, literally an extra pop to your fireworks display. And someone I know was involved in an incident where they crashed their car for being under the influence. And this was after 9-11. They had modified fireworks in there that they were just going up shooting around because it's fun. And they fell under a thing where they were gonna be could potentially be prosecuted as a federal crime. And going from you know falling asleep on the wheel under the influence, which that's not justifying that at all. Th thankfully, when they crashed, they crashed into a guardrail. No one was hurt. They had minor injuries. You know, it was really like a best case scenario if you're gonna have a best case scenario in that kind of situation. But because they had the fireworks in their car. And it wasn't like there was a massive amount of them. There was a you know, few of them. They were now eligible to be prosecuted for a federal crime. And this person was young. You know, they were maybe 19, 18, 17 years old, something like that. So I think that there's always more to it if we're willing to go deeper. And what I take from this is, again, I'm going to be legit. I don't know the law enough to give an opinion one way or the other. I can say that I could focus on, it sounds like 99% of the people are on board and getting this through, or I could focus on the one person who seems like they're against it. When I look at that, I could say, wow, 99% looks like an overwhelming majority of all people seem to be proactive for this. Or I could focus on the one person, and because it's anti-lynching bill or law, I could be reactory and say all sorts of things that might be commonplace to go to that. So I think that there's always more to it. I, I, I do appreciate as someone who has had a personal experience with that and the, the ramifications of languaging in the law. And if that really is the intention behind it, I can understand that there might be, a, there might be an opportunity for discussing it. And that's that someone who's saying that we should, not, we should not in any way be allowing those types of things to go on in the United States. And me saying, I appreciate looking at the languaging of it, is not making me a bad person or opposed to the law or anything like that. It's just simply saying that I can appreciate looking at the languaging of it and context is king. Consider what that statement by Paul would mean if it didn't come before or didn't come after a big headline like anti-lynching law. Consider our emotional reaction to somebody opposing it. And therein, that could be a problem because how are we going to learn, grow, understand another if we're just making emotional gut reactions to headlines, which is, I think, one of the underlying challenges that all of us face right now because we're a headline culture and a lot of it is surface and we're not going deep enough to substance. And if we really want to create meaningful change, I think we all have to be willing to go deeper. We all have to be willing to go deeper. So anyways, that's that. And now speaking of going deeper, Jared and I, we thought it'd be kind of fun that we, to, to introduce this a little bit more psychology and we've, we ended up taking the Q and A way longer than we, we thought we would. Of course, <laughs> both of us need to learn better time managers. We thought it might be kind of fun to, to ask one another just in play about some of the common black, white stereotypes that we hear. And then 
finish up with a little bit of a, a discussion on more psychology and then setting us up for the next week. So Jared, I'll let you go first. Oh, shucks. You're going to let me go first? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Put it right on you. (laughs) Oh, fudgeola. Okay. Um, the obvious one is athletes, right? So that's what you, that's what we start off with. Um, black people are are better athletes. Yeah. dude. Um, why? Why are, why are black people better at basketball, football, well, spe- specific positions in football, right? Wide receiver, running back. Uh-huh. White people still seem to have a, a chokehold on quarterback as long as Tom Brady's in the league. <laughs> That's I don't one. know. Patrick and, Mahomes. Yeah, yeah, My yeah. Boy. Times are changing. And, and Fast- Lamar is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that Cam Newton, isn't he going to the Patriots? Huh? I think Cam uh, is it Cam Newton is going. Ah, uh, Cam Newton's not in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basketball is clearly black guys are way better than white guys. So what what's going on here? Why is that? Ah, so um, I I believe this I believe this is twofold. Okay, so I'll, I'll go with the 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 the. Uh, the first argument um, that we, that I was telling you about before, like in my opinion, right? So um, I feel like options matter, right? If you feel like you can take the safe route and establish a life for yourself, the safe route is I'm going to go to school, go to college, get a job, build a family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like all of those things, like that path looks clear, right? And say you're – skilled at your skill you're you're you you like start off and you're a pretty good athlete right but you know like your likelihood of like becoming one of the best athletes is like right you know what i mean it's but in your white and you believe in white stereotypes like you know what i mean like you know I like you're, <laughs> you're you're good but you don't think you'll be great right yeah. unlike a christian mccafferty who who knew he was going to be great or a Gronkowski who knew he was going to be a great, right? Um, I'm pretty, I'm, I don't know if Tom Brady knew he was going to be a great or not. <laughs> I think Tom Brady but, decided. I think he decided he was going to be great. Yes. He, I think, he was fighting against the trend dude. his whole life. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's actually did. probably my favorite quarterback um, yeah, for that reason, right? That decision. Just because just of that. But uh, our favorite player, actually, for a while. But um, – but, but no, um, I think that you don't put the time and effort into it, right? So you see this path, there's more of a sure thing, right? Which I think most young white kids, male or female, do see sure thing paths to building a family and having, you know, um, wealth and uh, stability and all of those kind of things that everybody wants, right? I think less black kids feel like that's a... A, a real path, right? Whereas they're like, I'm pretty good at football or I'm pretty good at basketball. <coughs> that's not, like, they feel like if you talk to a kid, 15, 16, that's a decent basketball player and he's black, all of them got dreams of going to the league. You talk to a 15, 16-year-old white kid that plays basketball, right? Probably not. He's like, I like it and it's fun. right you know what i mean even though the math doesn't work out (laughs) that those 15 16 year old black kids are probably they're probably not gonna make it one percent like one one and two percent are actually gonna make the actual nba like you know what i mean but all of them have like this thought i can do it i can make it right i just gotta keep putting in the work so when you have a little bit of talent or you have some talent and you hone in on it and focus on it and develop it, you're going to be more likely to reach the highest level of anything that you're doing. So what I honestly think is that more, more kids color with less, less feeling they have less opportunity, feel like they have a better chance of becoming an NBA star than I'm going to be work this regular job and, and have a family. So they put all their time and energy into that from a young age. And so that blossoms into more black kids playing, you know, professional 
sports, specifically football and basketball. Mm. Um, and I don't think you see it in like a golf because golf is super expensive, mm-hmm. right? So I don't have the money to play it, right? And it's only one black golfer, so the chances of me actually but making it he's the best, of course, slim, right? <laughs> right? Uh, tennis, um, it's just not it's not a lot of tennis courts in the hood. But you had you had brought up um, Serena and Venus and Serena, right? And their dad just got him, got him into it and put him in a position, right, yep. to, to play, right? And, just, and, and he pushed them through it. And I would say her, their dad's generation, like black kids that grew up in the, grew, grew up in the 70s, black kids that saw Arthur Ashe play, right? Because my mom was a state champion tennis player, right? So in that point in time, more during the 70s, Right, you saw more young black kids actually playing tennis, right? Than you did whatever, and they did. I mean, obviously they didn't make it because I think so. Okay, another one, Rick Ross. Have you ever heard of Rick Ross, the real Rick Ross? I feel like I've heard the name, but I don't know enough about. Okay, so now it's a rapper, but the real Rick Ross was a big time drug dealer in L.A. Right? Okay, and but when he was in high school, he was a nationally ranked tennis player. Like he played tennis, like, and he was really, really good, right? And he ended up getting into selling drugs and all this other kind of stuff, right? And so I think a lot of that generation, a lot of potentially great athletes, African-American athletes from 70s and 80s, ended up getting caught up in drug culture, right? Or hooked on drugs or whatever. And so since the percentage of them that were playing tennis was small, then, you know, you didn't, you didn't see, you know, many, if any of them make it out. So anyway, so that's, that's my belief. And uh, then of course I just sent you that the statistics of the genetics. So black people have the highest percentage of power athlete genes right? Or they call it type two muscle fibers, but they've mapped it down to your genetic code, right? And I think it was like, the thing I sent you is like 86. Let me pull it up. I got to pull it up because I forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Let's see. I, I screenshot it and sent it to you. So I'll be able to find it relatively quickly. Ah, here it is. So you do the math, not so 62% of African Americans, that's double any other group, have both genetic markers for majority type 2 muscle fibers, right? You combine that with the mix, like, so like, you know, it takes two uh, alleles to have blue eyes, right? But most people are brown eyed, you know what I mean? So um, most people have two things, two genetic markers to give them brown eyes, right? Then you get people with those kind of lighter eyes and they have one in one. So the same type of muscle fiber thing. So they have one in one. 33, um, 34% of black people have the one in one, type two, type one, right? They're mostly strong and they're strong and fast, but then they have some endurance just to keep it simple. So 62%, both genetic markers for strong. It's double any other group. 34% 34% have one in one. Only 5% have the endurance, both endurance genes. Or we, I'm in the 5%, guys. I'm in the 5 It's actually 4.8% of black people have the athletic genetic makeup that I have. And I'm in that 4.8% of fucking. It, it was something I knew my whole life, but to see it, when the DNA thing popped up was fucking bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Genetically, I'm also 20% Scottish. So I blame it on the Scottish genes. What happened? Just pop, you know, all the Scottish genes fucked my athleticism. So anyway, that's it. That's I'm done. Okay. All right. That's it. I'm done on that subject. <laughs> but that's why I became a personal trainer too. That's why I became... Because I gravitate toward things that I cannot do effectively. If I'm not good at it or it's really hard for me, I, I fucking dive in. 
Why, Jared, let me ask you, why do you think that is? Because I, I think there's something really magical there about that. And I want to just, I remember seeing this interview from a few years ago, Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley was probably one of the greatest power forwards in the, in the NBA and NBA history. He played for the 76ers, Phoenix Suns, Houston Rockets. I think there was three teams. Or 76ers, Houston Rockets. Yeah, Phoenix Suns. And Barkley was talking in this interview about he would go around to schools and when he would speak at mostly white schools and he asked them how many want to be a professional basketball player, only like, you know, five, 10% would raise their hand. But when you go to mostly black schools, it's 90% of the hands go up. And it's, it's really interesting. And I think we talked about that. We're going to have just full lengthy discussions about role models and who we look up to and how that inspires. But since you offered it, about when you find something and you dive into it, that thing that you're not necessarily good at, so you dive into it. What is that, why? What is it about you that you have that psychology? Where did you get that psychology from that you see you see something that you're not good at as a challenge almost maybe, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please correct me, but it's like there's a, there's a challenge to conquer. It's an adversity to overcome, whatever it is. Because I think most people, white people and black people, and I think this is one of the, fundamental challenges that all of us face no matter what skin color you have is most of us we're such creatures of comfort that when we see something that is hard or difficult we will look for the path of least resistance which is really usually how do I get to Netflix as fast as possible who can I blame for why I'm in this position right uh whose responsibility is it that I haven't had life easier you know whatever that might be and because what I'm hearing from you is you're, there's this notion of you taking a personal responsibility for, you know, wanting to make yourself better in this area. And, and I can relate to that too, is, you know, growing up poor white kid, like just definitely looking at things as like, is it, is it where, how do I overcome this? How do I make my circumstances better than when I grew up? So just, what is it about you? If you don't mind me putting you on the spot. Fuck, I don't know, man. Ah, shit. Excuse my language. Um, I guess I should be eloquent with this one. I think I'm a sadist, <laughs> right? So I just, you know, if that's sadistic, like, you know, fucking, I didn't have to join the military at all. I had, I had job offers coming out of college. I could have got, well, I had, you know, I could have gotten a good job and I chose to join the Marine Corps. Cause it's the toughest, baddest, and it's gonna fucking teach me something, right? I fucking yeah. It's I. You know what? If I'm really, really, really like, if I try to break it down, psychology-wise, um, part of it is um, how I was raised. Um, a large part of it is 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 how I was raised, and um, you know, I, I come from a family of if you were good at it and you could just do it, right? There was almost, it was just expected, hmm. right? It was so, it was just so expected in my family to be good at certain things, right? And it was like, you got, this is just me being honest. No, no, like, oh, I'm some wonderful person who just loves challenging adversity, which I do, fuck it, I do. I actually enjoy it, right? <laughs> I do enjoy it. But like, if I go back to like my psychology when I was young, it was, I was always challenged, right? It was always, okay, you did that, but how could you, how good could you have done, right? Um, or like, why are you proud that you outperformed that person? Like, you're, you were supposed to outperform them there, right? Or, um, you know, it was just, it was just, uh, I feel like the places where two things happen, the places where I found failure first and then found mm -hmm. success, I got the most out of it mm. in terms of it felt better. You know what I mean? Like some wins don't, some wins don't feel like some wins don't feel good. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm, I'm that kind of person where some wins just don't feel good and i'm not able to create that adversity like a michael jordan right like michael jordan was better than every fucking body right 
You, but like, that's, it just took my, a conversation to acknowledge that. Oh shit. <laughs> I, you know what? I never said I didn't like him because he wasn't good. <laughs> I said I didn't like him because of his personality, right? <laughs> I didn't like him as a player. Not he wasn't good. Not he wasn't great. I can admit, I can admit greatness when I see it. I just didn't like the man. But like, because, because my psychology is different. Like, yeah. he was already better than you. Right. And, but he was like, every day I'm going to fucking shove that shit down your goddamn throat. And I'm going to create a narrative. Whereas I need to shove it down your throat. Yeah. Does that make any kind of sense? I'm yeah. going to create a narrative in my mind where it's like, you don't know I'm better than you. Let me fucking show you right now. Yeah. There's no, and it was like, and that's, and that's cool. Right. And that's a, a winning, a winner's, mentality i don't know what the fuck my mentality is so i'm being i'm being honest with you like you yeah. ask me this question you open this can of worms <laughs> I think, I and think i it, am i am a i am a i fall into places where it's very hard for me to win and i will push hard to figure out a way to win there and that's and that's and it's what and that's what i enjoy and it's what it because it, it brings me the most meaning it brings, brings me the you the most meaning. meaning is that what you said Huh? It brings you the most meaning. Yes, and fulfillment. It makes me feel. It makes me feel better to to win where the chips were against me. Yeah. Right. It makes me. It it just it just does. Or where people thought I would fail. I wish people told me more often that they thought I would fail. Like I wish. I wish I walked around and all people said is. You can't do now. Now as an adult, even I think as a child, it was kind of that way. But now as an adult, for sure, you can't do that. You'll never do that. I'm like, oh shit, all energy, everything I got. <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh yes, it's just like ah. Uh, and see, but like Michael Jordan, the beautiful thing, he could create that psychology yeah. in himself, even though everybody believed in him. <laughs> he was like, y'all think I'm a fail. Yep. Every day, <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't talk shit to Michael Jordan enough because he, whatever you did was never as severe as what he would probably say to himself in his head about what you were saying to him. Yes, right? yes, you get a, exactly. You get a PG version of it, and he's already like triple X'd it to make it yes. as like in your face as possible. Yes, Jared, I want to because I know we're running up to our hour mark, and I want to make sure we stay in time integrity. I want to give you a chance to ask one white stereotype question too before we wrap up. So I just I want to add to this really quickly. I appreciate so much you letting me put you on the spot and sharing that, because I've long held the the belief, and I, I've shared this with you before, that I really feel like in most things we are less than a generation away from massive change in terms of consciousness. Because from my perspective, I feel like that if we could <clears throat> empower children from the very first day they enter into an educational context and, and empower them in a way of not so much where it's, it's the focus on how our education might have been traditionally about, you know, memorizing facts and figures and learning these types of things. And especially when we're talking about history and history is so debatable right now, but instead we really empowered children about developing their psychology, the notion that they could become anything that you you can, like, what's your best self? What is that best version about, about identifying at an early age? Are they somebody who's motivated by negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement? Because there are both, you know, you'll have the uh, people like yourself, uh, Michaels, Kobe's, that they're either way, it doesn't matter. And a lot of times it's the negative that's more powerful for them. A lot of people are motivated by positive reinforcement. But if we could start to identify that early on and then teach to that in a way, where we're setting up challenges and those types of things that are always developing psychology and it's inviting them to ask that question from very first age. What is that best version of themselves? Not what do we want to be or who do we want to be where we grow up? That's kind of like the, the elementary entry point to it, but more so what is that best version of yourself, right? Who do you think you, who is the absolute, like if you look into the future, who is the very best version of you? Who are you as a human being, as a, as a, as a contributing member of society, not just your vocation. And that's kind of an archaic way of, of teaching, right? And learning because we attach vocational, vocational level or vocational title to societal significance. 
right? And prestige and whatnot. And it goes into the whole respect your elders, you mind your manners, that kind of narrative that's been around since God knows how long. But I just, you know, I wonder, and anytime somebody offers, like you just did there, I'm always curious to ask that question of what was it? What was it? Or what is it that drives you? Because to me, in my most simplified version of how do we change, that's it right there. It's, 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 it's never such a big mountain because it's a generation away where literally if we just went and, and, and we, you know, if it was as simple as just going and changing how the psychology and education goes and we stop asking, who do you want to be? What do you want to be? But who is that best version of you? And we start empowering kids with bigger questions and, and creating those different versions. I just, I feel like it's so much closer than we may realize sometimes. That. It's probably why I feel more fulfilled. And that's probably what you were going through for with the question. Why I feel more fulfilled when I attack things that I might not necessarily be good at. That's why, because I'm always trying to be, well, what's my limit here? I might not be, I might not be the best. I might not be like where I'm not good at. I'm like, where's, where's my limit here? Where can I drive myself to in this sphere? I'm going to still do these things because I'm good at them and I gravitate toward them and everything else. But I think I can be better here. We're, let's let's see what I can what I can bring it bring it up to, um, and and I just and I also I don't like being like there are things that I care things that I don't care about, but things I care about I don't like not being good at them. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> that's that's the piece right there, Jared. Is like you are recognizing that with what's fulfilling and meaningful to you, which all of us are chasing meaning and fulfillment in life. Like that is the end game that all of us are playing. Like all 8 billion of us on this planet, if you really sat us down and you started to go, and we might have different languages or different expressions, but the universal thing is we are all chasing meaning and fulfillment. Yes. And with you, you were able to start to be aware of it, you're self-aware, so you started to identify it. You could, you could maybe, we could say you even stumbled into it. Super young though. I started doing it like young, young, young. You know, so how do we then like, that's the thing for me is like, how do we teach that? How do we teach that? So every kid that when they leave kindergarten or first grade and second grade, it's not that they can do the ABCs and reading and all those things are important. It's that they understand or at least they have an elementary understanding of what brings meaning and fulfillment to their life. And Mm -hmm. then we scale that up as it goes, just as you grow so does your understanding of meaning and fulfillment grow. Yeah. And so maybe academic aptitude is no longer measured in A, B, C, D, F. It is no longer measured in the ability to memorize certain dates and certain figures. And we don't need to learn quadratic equations unless you're really going into math. I, I have all sorts of trauma associated with quadratic equations. We can save that for another time. But maybe instead academic aptitude is measured in something about meaning and fulfillment. Does he or she have a clear understanding of what brings meaning, what brings fulfillment to life, what is purposeful. And are we supporting them on that path? And then their advancement through education becomes understanding that at a deeper level. And then that way we're evolving career paths, uh, you know, contribution paths, paths, everything. Nonprofit work, your charity work, your community work, your athletic work all of it ties back into that thing because we know statistically here just in the U.S. is, is 60 to 80% of people strongly dislike or hate their job. We know that in the U.S., one in two people are going to take some sort of anti-anxiety, anti-depression medication. We know in the U.S. that there's over $150 billion with a B dollars every year on pills to treat depression and anxiety. We know that all these things are going on. And so to me, all that keeps coming back to what was it about Jared that separated you from most black and white? And it was that that it's, you had this understanding of meaning and fulfillment early on. And so it's like, when I, when I hear in the larger sphere that we're arguing over policy and, and, and things that to me seems like it's still missing the bigger piece of how do we get to meaning and fulfillment? Because that's what we're all after. You know what's crazy? And then I'm, I'm going to end it here because uh, I heard the bathroom. And oh, you got to ask me. You got to ask me one. My phone here. is blowing up. You got to ask but, me. Uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like, I'm, I'm transparent, guys, always. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> going to pee my pants. But um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, I think 
all so I said it started early for me, right? Like six, like six I can mm-hmm. remember. I think if actually if you ask your kids, most kids start off chasing fulfillment. I think most, I think our brains are built to figure out where do I fit in in the world? What's my place? How do I contribute? And I think, I think that to a certain extent, school or society kind of like whittles us into something else. Does that make any kind of sense? You're like, you know, it's like, well, I know you think that you're going to feel fulfilled or whatever this way, but that path's not good for you. So here, or it narrows your vision to the point where you think that your job is your value. When your kid think you understand your values or your, the important parts of life are way bigger than that. Yeah. We lose. We, I think we, I think we actually, we lose things as we get older and then we have to refine them. <laughs> right. And so, and so what happened with me was, um, you know, I, I, I kind of, I took a long time before I narrowed my vision, I guess is what, what would be the most, I, I was really like, what's going to make me feel fulfilled? What's going to make me feel fulfilled? It kind of got shifted and turned and whatever, but it took a long time. But when I found it, I, I, I locked in on it. Right. And I, you know, I, I, so I, I think, I think you're right about the generational piece in the schooling and everything else. And, um, but I think we, I think we, I think we try to brainwash our children. I think we try to brainwash them. Right. And I think that we should be learning from them more. (laughs) Kids are so much smarter than we are. In, In the intuitive side. right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they do they just they, they get it in an innate way that we have programmed that innateness almost out of ourselves yes right we're yes. we're we spend most of our time debating right or wrong black or white red or green this or that and it's not to say that those things don't have importance it's just that kids are already looking way past that and they're looking at really <laughs> like, what, again what what brings me what brings me meaning what's going to be fun what's going to make me happy how can I enjoy right now? How can I use my imagination to make the most of this? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just, there's some beautiful lessons in that. It's not to dismiss the importance of the, the societal work that needs to be done. It is to offer a different perspective of where we might all be able to look deeper and grow for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I know you got a, I know you got a P man so we can wrap it up, but did you want to ask me a white stereotype at all? Or you want to just let me, let you, let you off the hook. Uh, let's, well, I'll get, I'll get, I'll throw one in there next week because okay. I, I don't have one on top of my head right now. All right, everybody. So again, we really appreciate you all sticking with us. Be sure to comment, Jared. I love seeing your discussions. I encourage you to ask questions, ask questions of each other. Seek to understand. I, you know, my, my challenge for each of you is this, is try to seek to understand. Assume each and every person in this group has something to teach you and that you have something that you can learn from them. It, try to ask questions. Try to understand. Ask them why they believe what they believe. Why do they think that? Why do they feel that way? You know, the more we seek to understand and we empower one another with questions, the more I think more people will volunteer and ask questions too. I love the discussions I have had. And just as a personal note, it is absolutely fascinating observing conversations between and amongst all of you. I so appreciate each of you who are contributing and the, I, I just, I find it such an empowering and I'm learning every time. And I appreciate Jared, you as always holding space, man, and making, making the time for this. And I'll, I'll shut up so you can get to the bathroom. Oh, I, I appreciate it. And I just wanted to give a recap. Etienne, Derek, we will get to the issues of qualified immunity. Um, we, and then um, as well as we'll dig a little bit into anti-lynching and um, more, we'll, we'll approach those um, political issues a little bit harder, but we really want to dig on the psychology before we touch on the politics. So it's a, it's a graduation of things. We first, we address politics, then we 
the psychology underlying that. And then we, what we believe, right, is we find more connection in the psychology and the issues or what's underneath of actual politics. And then we can dig it back into what is actual politics and law. Um, because when you start to deal with legal stuff, it gets, it gets, it, that's where the colors change, I guess, <laughs> or things get added and we lose, we lose a little bit. Um, so I think just to give you guys some, some feedback on that. Right. I don't want them to think we forgot. I don't want people to think we forgot. We didn't forget. We're not wasting time. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the next conversation of building a bridge. We appreciate all of you. Bye-bye.